When we look back at Apollo now, it's been 50 years, you know, we see it as this singular accomplishment of humankind. It energized an entire generation's aspirations for a leap to another world. A leap that would have been impossible without pioneering technology and the efforts of thousands of people. The Apollo spacecraft was the first time that men had trusted their lives to a computer that was controlling the vehicle they were riding in. Did I have the perspective at that time to really understand the significance of that? I'm not sure. The Apollo guidance computer landed humans on the surface of the moon for the first time in July of 1969. But it did much more than win the race to space. It set in motion the digital revolution that would transform human society. You lift the lid off the thing and it's become very plain and obvious that this thing was made by the brightest minds at the time. It's a tour de force of engineering and computing. And yet, it's a largely silent protagonist in the lunar story. My goal is to preserve the legacy of the Apollo guidance computer. It's an effort that's way beyond the scope of one person doing it. We're on a mission. As we approach the 50th anniversary of the first lunar landing, we meet the innovators who made that revolution possible and the crew of disciples trying to keep the memory of Apollo alive. From the Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Anthony Green. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. In this 1961 address to Congress, President John F. Kennedy trained the country's imagination on the technologies that would make stepping beyond our home planet a reality. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space. And none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. In a very real sense, it will not be one man going to the moon. We make this judgment affirmatively, it will be an entire nation. For all of us must work to put him there. Eight years later, on a hot summer day, astronauts Michael Collins, Neil Armstrong, and Buzz Aldrin launched toward the moon from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. As they approached their destination, the men clamored for a camera to capture images of the alien landscape below. There's a lot less uh, variation in color than I uh, would have thought, you know, looking down. Yeah, but when you look down, is there brownish color? Sure. Oh, God, hey, let me have that camera back. There's a huge, magnificent crater over here. I wish there the other lens on, but God, that's a big beauty. You want to look at that guy, Neil? Yeah, I see him. Well, there's no doubt that uh, this is a little smaller than the Earth. Millions around the world were waiting with bated breath as Apollo 11 made its final descent toward the lunar surface. Uh, Tranquility base here. 
The event united the nation and the world in ways few events do today. Wall Street Journal science reporter Robert Lee Holtz was among the spectators. You know, when I try to remember where I was on the day of the moon landing, you know, I can't. What I remember is the television image. We saw these kind of out-of-focus, shadowy, cruddy images. It was very, it it wasn't real. And what I do remember is walking outside, and it was at night, and you could see the moon, and that made it real. The idea that I was down here, and here was my familiar nighttime vision of the moon in the sky, and this time there were people on it, and they were walking around, kicking up dust and leaving footprints. That I remember. It was this sense of this was just a beginning. This is a signal event of my lifetime, a signal event in the lifetime of our country and in the history of technology and of the world. It's hard not to want to go back and poke around in it. I mean, there's this, I just think, very human impulse to want to go back and recapture the machinery of these very important moments when we were in motion. In June, Lee's search took him to Silicon Valley, where a group of programmers were trying to revive an Apollo guidance computer, or as they call it, the AGC. The machine had just been flown in from Houston by Jimmy Locke, who found it in a scrap metal sale after NASA had tossed it. There was 400,000 people involved in the Apollo program. If we hadn't had that computer, I don't think that we'd be where we are right now. We need to preserve the legacy of this computer. In other words, future generations need to understand, you know, where all this came from. Jimmy and Lee joined the rescue mission at the house of Mark Verdiel, an avid collector and one of the digital restoration experts. I'm standing in the basement laboratory of a mansion in Silicon Valley, and it is a repository of antique and vintage and rare computers. It's a storehouse of the history of computing. I see keyboards and oscilloscopes and displays and fiber optic links that piece by piece trace the history of how we have traveled device by device through the digital age. In the basement, Mark and others are working to repair the AGC. It's brown and looks more like a crate than a world-changing machine. But the inside is different. It's an impressive network of intricate lavender wiring and circuits. It's reminiscent of the nervous system. I'm suffering here. It's... uh... Can can I ask you to just explain what you're doing? So I am, we have a module that is faulty. It's potted in some very hard polyurethane. Like potted plants, potting electronics is the process of filling internal computer parts with a solid foam. It's meant to protect the guts of the computer from the violence of liftoff when it's hurtling out of Earth's atmosphere at roughly seven miles per second. But it also makes parts harder to repair. Mark is chiseling through that protective layer. So I need to kind of chip it over under without breaking any of the wires. So it, it feels like uh, digging out the, the, the bones of a dinosaur. <laughs> so I have to go super, you're breaking the rock around it and making sure the bone doesn't get hurt. So 
couldn't find a, an automated way to do it, so we have to do it by hand and very slowly. The piece just flicked off. And I'm, I'm using my grandfather's watchmaking tools, actually. <laughs> so this might be a hundred-year-old tool. And what's the problem here? So this is a uh, module that supports reading and writing to the um, core memory. It's unlike any other module in the AGC that we have. Others ones are unpotted and it appears to be a blown high current diode, which would make sense. That would be one of the most stressed components. Finger crossed, all the other circuits work. Uh, the diode is actually one we can still buy today. Uh, so we, we will replace with the same model and we should be all good to go and have our memory work again. So now you're spearheading the digital restoration mm -hmm. project that's working on the Apollo guidance computer. Certainly this is a vintage piece of equipment, but what's the interest and attraction for you? Well, that's one of the m most noble computers we could imagine working with. It's really the first miniature computer. It's only 70 pounds, but that has to be put in perspective. It's, it's a time where the computer that was on the ground where like this panel behind you and the computer weighed many tons and took a full room, right? And this is 70 pounds and fits in a large suitcase. One of the first computers to use integrated silicon chips. It was those integrated circuits, those silicon chips, that allowed engineers to shrink room-sized computers to the size of a briefcase. And today, integrated circuits are inescapable. They're the brains of every digital device that touches our lives. Washing machines, toasters, smartphones, aeroplanes, they're all descendants of the AGC. The first computer used for controlling an aircraft, right, for digital control of an aircraft, that had never been done before. You open the thing up and you, you know you are right there with the geniuses of, of computer making. It, it's just mind-boggling. Mind and we kind of retrace their life. And you, you feel so close to those people, right? And so you, for, for a little moment, you can feel like a genius yourself. The sophistication of what they did is very impressive. It's just years ahead of its time. Hi, so I'm Carl Clonch, and um, I've been involved in restoring really old computers for quite a while and working on a team with Mark. This is not just a hardware story. It's mm -hmm. a software story. Having a real-time operating system that can juggle hundreds of balls at the same time. So it's, it's managing this spacecraft flying at the same time that it's navigating. It's receiving information from the ground. So all of this interaction had to combine in the computer and not fail. And since it's unpredictable what things would occur at the same time, it was brilliant software engineering to come up with a robust priority system that was resilient enough to handle all of that. So why is it important to you and your colleagues that you can power up this machine and run software on it? We learned so much in, in observing them about how they were designed that's not obvious from looking at the cold dead chunk of hardware. The crew spent the next week doing the final repairs on the Apollo Guidance computer that would enable them to fire it up. It's the big moment. It's so excited. All right. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, 
and we do it the vintage way, of course, right? We use a vintage computer to power another one. Okay, three, two, one, zero. 1.73, we haven't wired any short circuits. Yep, Good. that's what we had earlier. Okay. And now so. I have to move closer to you, Mark, to see is what's that happening. Yes, yes. That, is, that is good. So we should have, so before you do it, mm -hmm. the expected result is all the lines should be green except the one before last bit on the left. Yep. So. Go for it. 2.27? Oh, it's running. Yeah, we got it. Oh, on, 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 on its own memory? Yeah, on its own memory. That's great. So that is yeah. Yes. <laughs> Only we have almost landed. For us, it's the equivalent of the moon landing. The software Mark's team had booted up for the first time in nearly 50 years forever changed the way humans and machines interact. Part of it was written by a 23-year-old math major with a taste for opera and fast cars. In the summer of 1966, he was looking for work. His search led him to MIT and into a building headed for the moon. My name is Don Isles. I wrote a good portion of the code that was specific to the lunar landing part of the Apollo mission. At his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, he showed us the nearly 2,000-page book that contained the code for Apollo. What this book in front of me is, is a listing of the flight code for the lunar module for the Apollo 11 mission. Here's a section called Fresh Start and Restart. That contained the programs that came into play during Apollo 11 when the alarms took place. As they neared the surface of the moon, a program alarm began flashing. We got the Earth right out of Brooklyn. <laughs> Houston, you're looking at our Delta 8. Program alarm. 1202. 1202. The alarms were saying there's no more storage space. It was a shock when these alarms started happening. The computer's memory had overloaded, and this caused concern among operators back on Earth about the safety of the astronauts. We were sort of holding our breath. You know, what is going to happen next? You know, is the spacecraft going to keep flying okay, or is it going to somehow go out of control? The great story of Apollo 11 at the last minutes of the landing, you know, the computer supposedly fails and then brave astronaut Neil Armstrong takes control and manually lands uh, the spacecraft and makes history. I mean, it's just not true. It's a fable that goes to the heart of our troubled relationship with these devices and in particular our relationship with machines that can do calculations and initiate actions much faster than we can. The computer was still flying the spacecraft okay. The Apollo spacecraft was the first time that men had uh, trusted their lives to a computer that was controlling the vehicle they were riding in. Did I have the perspective at that time to really understand the significance of that? I'm not sure. Fifty years on, that momentous interaction between man and machine still echoes in our daily lives. Every commercial airliner, I want to say every military craft of any size, and probably every private plane flies 
on a digital autopilot. We are currently um, in a world that is, you know, transfixed by the problems of uh, Boeing jets that crash mysteriously for reasons that nobody can figure out, except, well, there's something in the software, something that we don't understand. The pilot doesn't have control. There is a very specific example of the kind of authority dilemma that began with these computers in the Apollo program. Who's flying? When we carry our phones around, and our phones are our tool, but they're also manipulating us too. They're tracking us. They're in control of us. They're monitoring us. Uh, they're enabling other things to happen that we're not in charge of. When was the last time you got lost? When was the last time you bought a map? When was the last time you thought more than 10 seconds about where are you in the world? And that's also because of devices that grew out of this seminal machine. It's kind of amazing that this voyage to another world, actually its biggest effect has been in how it transformed the world it left. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. This episode was produced by Daniela Hernandez and reported by Robert Lee Holtz, Jake Nickel, and Alexander Hotz, with help from Becca Weinman. Our technical director is Jacob Gorski. Thanks for listening. I'm Anthony Green.